Okay, I'll start with you. July 15th. That's a good day. Your turn. October 1st. Very nice. And lastly, you blow. Thank you. June 29th. It's my birthday. So lucky. These are the days you will die. Someone from the government will come. It'll be quick. It'll be clean. Go in peace. Shalom in the home. <laughs> okay, that's obviously a joke. But if that was the case, that would be a strange way to have your fate determined, right? Rolling of dice, it feels so impersonal, it feels so cold. Yet, for a lot of the tragedies and pain and curveballs that life throws at us, it kind of feels that way. It feels random. It doesn't feel like there's any uh, big moral scheme. It just plops in your lap and that's that. For example, you uproot your family to move across the country for a new job and the company goes under in two months. Or perhaps you've got an important job interview and the internet cuts out and you miss it and that's why you don't get the job. Or you buy a new house and surprise, it needs $30,000 in repairs. Things just happen like that. Last weekend, my wife and I were at a funeral for friends of ours whose daughter passed away when she was nine days old. Nine days old. Sudden infant death syndrome. It's nothing they did, nothing anyone did. It's one in 4,000. It's just a statistic. And things like this really can shake your heart and make you wonder, is God really in control of all this? At funerals, some people say, you know, this was God's will. But with this child, was this God's will that she would pass away? Did he cause it to happen? Or no, he didn't cause it to happen, but he just allowed it to happen. He chose not to intervene. That doesn't really help the question, though, because if God's all-loving, why wouldn't he want to stop this? If he's all-knowing, why couldn't he think of a way to stop it or to have other things happen so that wouldn't take place? And if he's all-powerful, why couldn't he pull it off? Where is God's providence in the midst of my pain? And providence is a pointed word. Providence means purposeful sovereignty. Sovereignty just means to be in control, to have power. Dictators are sovereign. Xerxes in the book of Esther is sovereign. But providence is purposeful sovereignty. It's power directed at something. And in God's word, it says that God is all powerful, but he's also in control. He's working all things together for his purposes. Whether we uh, people respond in obedience or disobedience or faithfulness or unfaithfulness, God will use all things to accomplish his purpose will. And that's a much stronger claim than just saying God is all powerful. Yet in your injustice, at the role of a die, where's God's goodness? How do we find faith in the fog of life? Well, I would invite you to turn with me to Esther chapter 3 as we see God's people in this exact circumstance. Just to catch you up to date, the last two chapters of Esther have kind of been a roller coaster. It opens with God's people in exile in Persia. They weren't faithful to God's covenant. They were disobedient to him, and therefore they were conquered by other people. They're in Persia. And Xerxes is the ruler. He's on the throne. Xerxes, you know, he's had some victories in battle, and he decides to throw a six-month party 
for all of his friends to show off all of his stuff. And in, in their drunken stupor, he decides to invite his wife in and he was gonna show her off in front of all the boys in a way that wasn't too dignifying to her, if you kind of catch my drift here. She says, no. And that kind of wounds Xerxes' pride and his buddies come to him and say, you know, hey Xerxes, how about you banish the queen and then we pass a decree, a law, that all women have to obey their husbands. And Xerxes goes, ugh, sounds good, okay. A few years pass, Xerxes comes back from a failure in battle with his tail between his legs. He's kind of down, and you know, all of his royal advisors, just a dude being advised by younger dudes. Seems like a great plan. They come up to him, they're scheming. They say, uh, hey Xerxes, we got an idea to cheer you up. How about we go throughout all the land and pick 200 of the finest looking ladies. You know, we buy in bulk, it's like Costco. <laughs> we bring them all in and it gets better. We're gonna give them a whole year for them to look their best. You know how they always take 10 minutes, 20 minutes, you know what I'm talking about. We'll give them a year to look their best. And then you can sample, you can peruse. You know, you still got it, Xerxes, you're still good, okay. You go and you can try before you buy. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> Idiots. Okay. And Xerxes goes, mm, okay, me likey. And so they go out into all the lands. And this is where Esther and Mordecai are introduced. Esther is a young woman, Jewish. Mordecai is Jewish. Esther's parents have passed away. And so Mordecai is her much older cousin, basically adopts her in as his daughter, parental figure. Esther's brought in and over the years she starts to gain favor and she comes out with a gold medal in the beauty Olympics. She is chosen to be the queen of Persia. And that seems like in some ways, there's some advantage to be had from that. It's a terrible situation that she's taken, forced, uh, sexually exploited to be the basically the property of the king. Okay, but if you're gonna be the property, being, being the top piece seems to be some advantageous elements to it. And chapter two ends with Mordecai, this is her uncle, overhearing a plot against the king. He overhears people talking about, okay, we're gonna try to assassinate Xerxes. Mordecai goes, warns the king, the plot is thwarted, and the assassins are killed, crucified, executed publicly, okay? That seems like also, maybe this is gonna get us some favor with the king. Things are set up for a good outcome. You know, if Mordecai, stop people from killing the king, maybe he would get a pat on the back, a gold star, a lifetime supply of jelly beans. Let's see what's gonna happen to Mordecai. This is where we pick up in Esther chapter three, verse one. What's Xerxes going to do? After these things, King Ahasuerus, this is the Hebrew name for Xerxes, promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatta, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. The verse opens and it says, after all these things. So this was actually five years later. You think in that much time, Xerxes would be able to go out and you know get a thank you gift for Mordecai, thanks for saving my life. He could go to the mall, he could get a card, send a gift card through email, you know, there's options. Could have done any of that, nothing happens. And then after all these things, King Ahasuerus promoted. Okay, a promotion's coming. Maybe Mordecai is gonna you know, get some favor with the Farsi powerhouses. Not at all. He promoted Haman. Some of you think I could save my boss's life and I would get demoted. It's biblical. Bad bosses, it's in the book, okay? Now, in the Hebrew narrative, 
Uh, the characteristic associated with a character when they're identified, it's kind of the defining feature. Here's an example. Chapter 2, verse 5, Mordecai is introduced not as a you know, man of the court or an advisor. He's introduced as a Jew from the tribe of Benjamin. Okay, so he's kind of representative of Jewish people, this character in the narrative. And then Haman is introduced. He's identified as an Agagite. It's a nasty word. It feels like a mouthful of gravel. And the author is introducing him as an Agagite. He's kind of a representative of this perennial tension and relationship between the Agagites and the Jewish people. Um, so the original listeners, they would have heard this and they would have stood up, pointed and yelled, the Agagites, the Agagites, those are our enemies. They tried to kill us because earlier on in the Bible, when God first uh, creates the people of Israel, when they're formed in the early, early days, the Agagites are the first people that attack them and try to wipe them out. This is the first act of terrorism against the Jewish people. These are their long-standing enemies. And in the context of that, on Mount Sinai, when God makes his covenant with Israel, he says, I will protect you from them. This is Exodus 7, uh, 8 to 16. I will protect you from them, and I will wage war against these people in this way. Now, here's the tension, okay? Jewish people and the Agagites are now face-to-face -face in these characters of Haman and Mordecai. So there's tension, historical tension. These two are butting heads. And there's, there's an awkward tension, though, because God's people haven't been faithful to the covenant. That's why they're in Persia in the first place. They weren't faithful to the covenant. The question is now, will God be faithful to his promises to deliver them from the Agagites, from their enemies, even though Israel hasn't been faithful to their end of the covenant? Will the covenant between God and his people still be in effect? This is all that's packed in to verse 1. So let's keep reading. Verse 2. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. If the king has to command that everyone respects you, it doesn't look good. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, you know, why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them he was a Jew. So there's added tension. Haman's on the throne, and he says, everyone who comes by me, comes before me, they will bow. Mordecai is present. He doesn't bow. That would be kind of awkward. Everyone's bowed down. They look over. Mordecai's standing straight up. He's giving him a stink eye, staring right at him. You are the representative of the people that want to wipe out my people. I'm not bowing to you. I'm not bowing. I'm actually anti-bowing. I'm on my tippy toes. I'm not bowing today. All the other guys are looking. What's going to happen? Mordecai is publicly repeatedly defying him day after day. It's kind of undermining him. It's ridiculing him. It's defiance. And you know, this is just me talking. This is kind of conjecture. I don't know personally if this is the most politically savvy or prudent move of Mordecai to do. It, it wasn't clear that this bowing was religious, like bowing to another god. It was a sign of respect. In that culture, you bowed in reverence to those higher up the chain of command. That still happens in cultures today. In the military, you salute. Even if you don't respect the person, you salute to respect the uniform. If you're before a British monarch, you curtsy or you bow in this way. Um, but here, Mordecai, all of a sudden, he gets tough. He's going to make a stand on this. You know, when the king's men come to take away his kind of adopted daughter to sexually exploit her, 
There's no sign of the struggle, no pushback, but all of a sudden showing respect to someone he doesn't like, he says, no way, I'm not going to bow. I didn't bow yesterday, not bowing today, and guess what, tomorrow, who's got two thumbs and isn't bowing? This guy. So you can debate whether that's, you know, mature or not at Swiss Chalet after this, but he says, I'm going to take my stand. So let's keep reading now to see what happens. The stage is set. Arch enemies, public defiance intention. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. The pride of a weak man has been stoked. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So, as they had made known to him, the people of Mordecai, everyone else said, Mordecai's a Jew, that's why he's not bowing to you. That's what he says. Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Mordecai says, I will not bow down because I'm a Jew. Haman responds, okay, I'm going to kill all the Jews then. Kind of backfires right in his face. He thought pulling the religious card would save his life. It's actually going to take his life and everyone else. You're a Jew? I hate the Jews. Haman becomes the first Hitler. He outwardly declares his intention for genocide. He's going to destroy an entire community because they were God's covenant people. When you look at history, the, the grand arc, the drama of it, um, the script stays the same, but the names change at different times. Satan writes a script, he hands it to Haman, he says, destroy God's people, wipe them out, kill them all. And you can see thousands of years later, the same script is handed to Hitler. He's not the only person that sought to wipe out God's people, the Jewish people over history. Wipe them out, destroy them, eradicate all the people. And we need to be careful when we encounter things like this in scripture, that we don't approach it with kind of this haughty, self-righteous, staring down our nose attitude at these. That, oh, look at this terrible person, Haman, who takes out his anger inappropriately on one person and it leads to murder. Because Jesus says in Matthew 5, that murder and hatred are on the same highway of the human heart. One is just a further stop down in this way. The difference is, sometimes, Haman had the legal ability to kill who he wanted without consequence in this way. He had the legal ability. Many times we lack the, the legal ability. So we have murder in our hearts, we just don't execute it. But the question is, when we read this, okay, who do I hate? Who do I have hatred in my heart? And I would wipe them out if I could. We would never say that, but you know, you're sitting there fuming at night, staring at the ceiling. My life would be so much easier if they just didn't exist, if they weren't part of it. So let's keep reading now. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, Nisan, the Ultima, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast poor. That is, they cast lots. These were six-sided clay cubes before Haman, day after day. So they cast them to determine the day of the genocide. Okay, it'll be this day. And they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. So they determine the day, they take the dice, they roll them, and this will be the month. What a trivial, sick, impersonal way to determine when you're going to wipe out all the people. They cast lots, they roll dice. Let's keep reading. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, he's going to say three things. It's going to be a truth, a half-truth, and a lie. You know, a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. He's going to say something fine, sneak in some falsehoods after the fact. Thank God, you know, policies aren't run like this anymore today. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people 
not going to say who, scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. That's true. That's God's people. Their laws are different from those of every other people. That's the half-truth. In some ways, yes. In some ways, no. And they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not the king's profit to tolerate them. That's not true. If it please the king, if it pleases the king, this is just for you, if it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. This was somewhere like 30 to 60%, I think it was 30, 30% of the Persia's GDP for the year. Hey, there's people, they're not good for us. And if you wipe them out, it'll solve some political problems. But guess what? You know, we're kind of financially hurting. Some of the military conquests haven't gone as planned. This is gonna put some coin back in your pocket. It's completely advantageous. I don't see why you wouldn't choose it. This is what he says to him. So the king took his signet ring from his hand, this is just basically the seal, and gave it to Haman the Agagite. He gave him the nuclear codes, the son of Hamadatta, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. The king of Persia took his seal, his royal decree, and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatta, the enemy of the Jews. And he says to him, these people, their belongings, this is for you. See fit and do as you want. Xerxes doesn't know these people. He just sees these in terms of numbers and dollars, not people and faces. There's a danger for, for all leaders, not just Xerxes, when we're making decisions that we just see things as numbers and dollars and not people and faces. God knows numbers, but God also knows faces. God knows dollars, but God also knows people. Xerxes, all that he cares about is the final dollar amount, how this will benefit his kingdom. And so we see here in this contrast already that Xerxes and Haman, at this point, are sovereign, but they are not providential. They have all power. Xerxes has all power in his kingdom. He gives his signet seal to Haman. He says, okay, you have my say, do as you want. They are sovereign, they are not providential. Xerxes is sovereign, but he can't even get his own wife to do what he wants. So he gives a decree trying to control everyone's wives. Haman is sovereign, but he can't even get one guy to bow to him. So now he's going to take out that guy and everyone else, and he's going to command all the people to do his bidding for him. This is what's going to happen here. Verse 12, then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month. This is important, the significance of this date. It explains that when this command, this genocidal command is being written down, it's on the eve of Passover. Passover is when God's people celebrate how he delivered them from Egypt. So even now, in the midst of this genocidal tidal wave coming for them, they're celebrating how God delivered them in the past. That's important to remember. Okay, then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and an edict according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to his governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written down in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. So 
When this is written down and put with the king's signet ring, it can't be overturned. There is no going back. It's not, okay, surprise, you know, uh, we put this bill forward. We didn't quite get enough votes. It could have been great, but it got shut down. Seems like their fate is sealed. The genocide is sealed as God's people celebrate his power to deliver them. Let's read the last few verses. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces. It would take like three months to get the word out. With instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day. Look at that language. Destroy, kill, and annihilate all people, men and women. Little babies, you know, gurgling. Toddlers with chubby cheeks just learning how to walk. Little girls with pigtails. Boys playing in the creek. Grandmas who couldn't get up fast enough to get away when the door is kicked down. Grandpas who wouldn't even hear it because they're hearing so bad when the door is kicked down. This is evil. This is blatant hatred and genocide that's commanded. In one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the people to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by the order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. So there's this satanic, demonic command given. Satan brings death, God brings life to kill all the people. And after this, the king and Haman sit down to have a drink. Man, we made some real money today. Wow, we did, we did a, a super duper good deal today. How crazy is that? Do you feel just the blatant disregard for them and the pain this is gonna cause for God's people, being totally wiped out? And what's interesting is the response of the people. It says, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. What this means is when the citizens of the city heard this, they were revolted. They were outraged at this. They said, but we love these people. My Hebrew neighbors, the people of Israel, they, they live with us. They love us well. They're decent people. They're our coworkers. These are good citizens. And this is, this is uh, something that we as a church should aspire to. We see a similar reaction in the Roman Empire when issues are given out in the provinces to persecute Christians. The leaders of the provinces wrote back and said, don't take out these Christians. We can't function without them. The role that they play in our culture, how they take care of the widows and the orphans. And may this be the cry of our hearts, that if persecution and opposition grows towards the church, that our neighbors around us would come to our defense, would say, hey, we don't worship the same God as them but we know God's love through them. They take care of us so well. Don't, don't come after these people. Don't, ki don't kill these people. God's people are to live lovingly in a culture in such a way that they know God's love through us. That's the commandment for God's people through Jeremiah. He says, you know, seek the welfare of the city where I have placed you, for in their welfare you will find your own. This is so important that we don't just love Christians, we love non-Christians too. This is why the Scott mission is set up and we don't ask people to, you know, prove their church membership when they come to the door. We don't draw half a fish in the sand and ask them to draw the other one or, you know, play the first three words of a DC talk song and ask them to continue it and then we'll bless them in this way. But we love all people, people that worship false gods, people that worship no gods, people that worship themselves. We can disagree in such a loving way that we bless the city around us. 
May it always be so with us. And then the chapter ends on this note. The decree is issued, the king and his boys have a drinking party, and the city is thrown into chaos. It's a cliffhanger. There's no real resolution at this point. And if we summarize this, things have gone, if you take stock, from bad to worse. Let me show you. First, God's people should not have been in Persia. They shouldn't have been there. They were unfaithful to God's covenant, and this is a result of their actions. Second, Esther should not be the queen of Persia. She should not have been taken. This wasn't, you know, like a, a Cinderella story. This is sexual exploitation. She had no say in this. There is no consent. There is no agency. She's taken to be the sexual property of a wicked, evil, incompetent man. Thirdly, Mordecai should not have been overlooked. He saved the king's life. He shouldn't have been overlooked in this position given to someone else. Fourthly, Haman should never have been born. This is an interesting thing. Earlier on, when Saul was leading Israel, God said to him, okay, this is the opportunity. I want you to make war with the Agagites. Take them out and don't touch their stuff. But Saul responds in disobedience. He does not wipe out the Agagites and he takes their stuff instead. And because of that, God's people are still suffering the consequences of a disobedient ruler. Haman shouldn't even be there in the first place. Haman should not have commanded genocide. He should not have done that. He had anger at one person, he takes it out on the group. He attributes to the group an attribute of an individual. That's racism, that's what it is. And finally, Xerxes should not have wielded his power so loosely. He has this power that God was given to, has given to him, whether he knows it or not, and he's accountable for the decisions that he makes. And he shouldn't just be focusing on a whim of hearsay of one person, yeah, there's these people, nameless people, numbers, dollar signs, he says, sure. He should have stewarded his power better. And at this point in the chapter, there's no grand, miraculous intervention. It seems like a great place for God to step in, you know, right before he puts in the signet ring, I don't know, it turns into like a dolphin flipper or something like that, or fire comes down from the sky, or a hand writes on the wall. This would be a great opportunity for an angel to come, do a little Jason Bourne smackdown. I don't know anything other than this. Nothing happens. God seems silent and absent. Where is, where is God as the state punishes these people wrongly? When we look closely, though, we can see the fingerprints of God in all places, that it may seem he's absent, but he is at work, both from our perspective as people on the other side of the covenant and what he has done and what he is doing in this place. All of this, when we look at these stories, it's all pointing towards Jesus. The Bible is one story and it's pointing towards one person, and that is of Jesus. The Bible isn't full of good guys and bad guys. It's full of bad guys who need Jesus. So when we see characters in this story, when we see plots unfold, we see this simply, that Jesus is better. Jesus is the better Mordecai and Esther. Like them, Mordecai and Esther are cousins working together. Jesus worked together with his cousin, John the Baptist. And Jesus is a king, seated on the throne like Xerxes, but Jesus is the better Xerxes. He does something that Xerxes would never do. He gets off his throne and he comes into human history. He humbles himself, not to just see numbers and dollar signs, but people and faces. And he loves people, he serves people, and he gets to know his own people. 
God becomes man. John looks at Jesus and he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And this is the fulfillment of the Passover that God's people are celebrating. That the blood of a lamb was shed, that death would pass over them and they would be uh, delivered from their captives, from their captivity. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been slain. Jesus is our Passover. Jesus is our King. And unlike Xerxes, he doesn't have his enemies crucified. There's people that plot against the King to take his life. That's Xerxes. Jesus doesn't have us crucified. He is crucified instead. Our humble, loving, gracious servant King, Jesus, who looks people in their eye, who have plotted his demise, and he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Jesus works out all of our mistakes. He forgives all of our sin, our rebellion, and he takes the worst tragedy in the world, the painful execution of a perfect man, and he turns it into God's glory and our good. This whole book is about him. With that perspective now, knowing Esther, knowing Jesus, Passover, his life, death, and resurrection, this helps us answer our original question, if you remember it early on. We were asking this question, where is God's providence in my pain? Where is his perfect plan in all the things that are coming my way? Where is it? How, how do I see it? How do I find God in the thick of this? All this confusion and orientation, how do I navigate through the fog of life? Last weekend, I was driving up to the funeral for this nine-day-old girl. It was a couple-hour drive. I was cruising through the woods and kind of just working through all the emotions as they come forward. Um, frustration, confusion, disappointment, hurt. It wasn't even my kid, but it shakes a community. And I was tempted to put on a podcast or an audiobook, just distract my mind, kind of drown it out. But for some reason, I put on Spotify, it was on Shuffle. And every song that came up was about the goodness of God. And it's, it's hard to sing along to good, good father on the way to a child's funeral. I got half the words out because I was, I was just so choked up in the midst of it. And this, and this act of proclaiming God's goodness in the face of this tragedy and suffering, I could feel, you know, my heart putting up a fight. The, the muscle of faith was being flexed. To remember, to remember and to proclaim and ultimately just preaching the gospel to myself that God is a good father, perfect in all of his ways to us, despite these present appearances. As, as Job says, you know, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. And it was revealing to me how God was reminding me of this, oh, so gently, how quickly I forget even in this act of worship, reminding my mind and pulling in my heart and training me to remember that in the midst of all this, he is still good, though I may not understand it. One of the best ways um, that God has given for us to do this in the midst of these things is actually through the Psalms. The Psalms are basically a songbook for God's people, and they're brutally honest. It looks like an emotional roller, co a roller coaster, but in times of distress, God's people looked to the Psalms for training. That's why we did our whole series, Where is God? And we just went through the Psalms. You can hardly do better than this. These were songs to be sung in the midst of hard times because they express the condition of the heart honestly, but they also train the heart and the mind. So I'm gonna do this very, very briefly. 
you look at Psalm 11, verses three to four, it says this. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? If the world is crumbling out from underneath you, what do God's people do? The Lord is in his heavenly, uh, is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. This is an excellent psalm in challenging times. David is being told by his advisors, hey, things are getting a little bit crazy. You should get out of here. But he gives an answer in response to this. He gives a reason for the mind and a reason for the heart to trust in God. I'm going to do them in a backwards order of this. The first reason that David gives for the mind is this. The Lord's throne is in heaven. That God is above all of these things. He is sovereign on high and holy. He rules from above. He's not surprised by anything. There's no emergency meetings between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You know, hey, Jesus, I thought you were on this. Holy Spirit, can, can, we, can we shift some resources here? Can we come in and fix this quick? I think John Piper says God does not drive an ambulance. He's not rushing and surprised by these things, but he is on high. He is sovereign. sovereign. We like to think that we are in control. And so if my world is out of control, then that means that the world itself is out of control. But the truth that God is in power is only comforting to us if we have a little bit of humility. A little bit of humility. It's like a parent driving a car. And you know, the other, there can be a child in the back seat. They could have a little toy car or a toy steering wheel. And they think that they're the one driving the car. But control is such an illusion. But if we recognize that, you know, a parent and a child, the gap in understanding between a parent and a child is nothing compared to the infinity of the distance between God's understanding and ours. So if God is all-knowing and I am not, if I am finite, broken, and limited, then it would make sense that things would happen that I would not understand. But God can still tell me that I have a plan. I am in control and I'm working all things together for my glory and the good of those who are called according to my purpose. That would just make sense. Like a parent saying to their child, you don't understand this right now, but just trust me, please, that I know what I'm doing. So that's the first thing. If we're humble enough to say, I am a child, and of course there are things I wouldn't know, I can still trust in my mind that God is in control. Now there's something for your heart also. David says that the Lord is in his holy temple. The throne of God is infinitely removed, but the temple is here with us. It's in our midst. And there's a place where God's space and our space overlap. That is the temple. Now, when David was writing this, um, you could come into the temple, but you couldn't come immediately into God's presence. That's where God's glory was most powerful. Moses said to God, hey, show me your glory. God said, if I show you directly, it'll kill you. God's glory was kind of uh, condensed to this place called the Holy of Holies. And one day a year, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, one priest could go into God's presence. It was so dangerous, it might kill you. They tied a rope around his foot. So if he died, they could pull him out. But Jesus said, Matthew 2, when he's flipping over the tables, he said, you can destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. And he was talking about himself that Jesus tabernacled among us. He templed among us. He was God's presence among us. He says, you can destroy this body, but I will rebuild it in three days. And when Jesus died, the temple's curtain was torn. God's presence was no longer relegated. But because of Jesus, because of what he did, now everyone can have this intimate relationship with the Father. You can sense his presence with us now because of Jesus through prayer, through worship, through the communion with other believers, through studying his word, the word of God, because God is on his throne and we can know Jesus 
God and his temple because of the person and work of Christ. Now, how do we do this? We'll wrap this up, don't worry. We don't see anything in this chapter that can help us. It leads us on a cliffhanger. But we're reminded to remember. We do see God's people remembering what he has done. And they hold fast to his promises, to his covenant. So here's a very simple exercise, something I've found through this process of journaling. You could call it journaling. I don't sit down and say, dear diary, today I got my taxes back. Whoopee, not like that. This is simply things that I do sometimes. Make a chart. On one side, write fear and just dump the truck. Take your pain to the mat. Write all the things that are swirling around in your mind. What are those voices of unbelief, of disbelief? Here's a couple. I'm alone. God doesn't care about me. God can't redeem this. Things won't get better. This is too much for me to bear. And then on the other side, write faith, fear and faith. What are the promises that I'm going to cling to in the midst of all this? What promises has God given me? So for the fear that I'm alone, by faith I can declare, Isaiah 41.10, so do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. I'm taking my pain to the mat. I'm dragging it in front of the presence of God and reminding myself of what he has said and who he is. For the fear that God doesn't care about me, I can respond in faith with Deuteronomy 31.8. The Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. The fear that God doesn't, uh, can't redeem this, I can proclaim Romans 8.28, and we know that all things God works together for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. And the fear that this is too much for me, I will respond, 2 Corinthians 12.9 and 10, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. So I'm going to beat my breast and confess honestly to God all my pain. And then I will pound on the rock that my faith is built on that I know can sustain me in the midst of all these times. That with my pain, my emotion, my doubt, my fear, with all of these things, I don't bow to them. I don't let them overtake me. I don't hide from them. I don't just shove them in a box, but I drag them into God's presence where he will train my mind and comfort my heart that he is the God who delivers, who delivered then, who delivers me now, and he will be faithful to deliver me in the future. This is the good news for us, church. Let's continue in worship together.